Welcome to the Do Good Radio Hour with Bluegrass Community Foundation. Here at Bluegrass Community Foundation, we believe doing good inspires good. It's the gift that keeps on giving. The intention behind the show is to encourage you by sharing the undeniable good happening within our community. Tune into the Do Good Radio Hour every Monday at 2 p.m. to hear about the good that is the heartbeat of our community and how you can get more involved. The Good Giving Challenge is finally here. If you don't know what that is, the Good Giving Challenge is an annual week-long online giving event that rallies the community in support of our local nonprofits. And this year, 2021, is the 11th annual Good Giving Challenge, which will kick off on Giving Tuesday, November 30th, and run through Monday, December 6th. This is our biggest year ever with 179 nonprofits who are participating. So we want you to come out and show your support at bggives.org and then mark your calendar for Giving Tuesday so you can get ready to give. So for the next upcoming episodes, we are going to interview several nonprofits who are involved with the Good Giving Challenge and just allow them to share their stories. So stay tuned and continue listening because we have four awesome nonprofits on this episode who are ready to share about the life-changing work that they are doing in our community. Stay tuned. Christine Smith, the Executive Director of Seedleaf, is here with us today to share about their work with Community Gardens, such a unique concept. So welcome, Christine. We want to hear all about it. Well, thank you for having me, Kate, and it's lovely to be here with you today. Yeah, explain <laughs> to our listeners the inner workings of Seedleaf and the mission behind what you do. It's super interesting. Yeah, so Seedleaf this November actually is 14 years old, and the organization was started as a way of addressing food insecurity in North Lexington. So in the East End neighborhood, north of that is where we work primarily, <clears throat> and we have 12 UPIC community gardens. I think when people think about hunger or need, they often envision food kitchens or like, you know, sort of a soup line or something like that. And really, I think there's a lot of unfortunate stigma against the poor and against people who at times fall into moments when they need additional help. And so our garden spaces kind of are strangely like in betwixt all of that. So as opposed to having to go to a state agency or having to queue up in a line, right? You can come to these gardens at any time of the day or night and pick according to your need. You don't have to pay me. You don't have to volunteer. You don't have to ask for it. These are open you pick gardens. And so Seedleaf staff and volunteers maintain these spaces for neighbors to be able to come and harvest food. And we make sure to have a variety of different food options in our 12 growing spaces. And so we have permaculture gardens, and these are only places where there are uh, perennials planted that are uh, food bearing. So we have jujubes, we have persimmons, we have goji berries, like the really weird stuff that you would find in like the weird section of the grocery store for superfoods, for example. And then we have those traditional annual crops that people love. We have tomatoes and chard and lots of collards and uh, peppers and things like that. So. We try to have a good variety of these 11 growing spaces. Most are traditional gardens with a, uh, some orchards thrown in uh, and a two acre community farm on the North Limestone Quarter. So we are always working to try to have food available for the community at the very minimum, March through October. And we try to leave things overwintering in these garden spaces like Taylor Collards so that people 
uh, can continue to pick in winter when we're not actively uh, in our sort of uh, growing season. Yeah, and I saw on your, I was watching a video you have on your website and one of the gentlemen on there said something really great about cultivating community between people who might not usually rub shoulders. I thought that was really a great thing. And why is this work important for our community and what effect does it have, this idea of cultivating a community? Yeah, I think, you know, um, when we're thinking about the current crises that we all face, especially around food and homelessness, it is incredibly dire, right? And it, it takes a lot of our attention and time because we're trying to think about, well, how do we address these issues? But around those issues, right, we can think of other problems that have led to the creation of those problems. And in many respects, when many of us fall into hard times, it's our neighbors that we turn to. It's the people in our community who we go to for help, not necessarily like a, an agency, but the people say on our street or in our neighborhood association who we say, hey, I'm having this hard time. Can you help me out? And for people to be able to do that, um, for communities to be able to be there for each other, we have to know who each other are. And so in Seedleaf, having a community that can come together over something like growing food, having garden grill outs where you get to like explore these places and these weird things like goji berries, learn something new and meet someone new, rub shoulders with someone who you would have never met before. That is sort of the magic behind addressing some of these really just intransigent problems that we haven't been able to like really solve right permanently like hunger, like homelessness. And also I find that being able to go into these kinds of spaces where you're rubbing shoulders, say with our vice mayor or with a local business owner who just happens to live around the street and wants to volunteer in a garden, you also become more civically engaged, right? Because those people who are in power or at city hall or who own these businesses that are in your community no longer seem like distant faraway entities, but they're people who are just your neighbors. And if they're just your neighbors, you can have conversation with your neighbors, right? You can joke with your neighbors. You can say, hey, this thing in my community is really bothering me. How do I go about making change? So a garden might seem really simple. And I think people often confuse it for something that's really cute, you know, but you know, it doesn't really do that much. And that I think quite the opposite. I think gardens are like a little nucleus, like of lots of power and energy uh, where lots of great change can happen. You know, you were essentially colliding two worlds, the, the food economy through gardens, combining that with the urban community. And it's so, it's so cool. And I know you have a story to share with us from your time at Seedleaf that shows this powerful concept. I'm sure you have several actually, but if you can just share one with us. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll talk about one. Uh, so we have this program, our market garden program, where we, when we got the two acre urban farm, it was really, you know, through trying to help a local farmer. Uh, so getting an urban farm had been in our plan for several years, but we just didn't know, you know, where would it be? Would we be able to afford it? You know, like if it was outside of New Circle Road, then that would just be so much logistically for us to do. But through the help of a local farmer, uh, we were able to locate a location and they were like, look, I can't afford land. Uh, land is just so expensive in central Kentucky to find for farming. Uh, a lot of it is dedicated to horses. Um, and they wanted to be near home, near their community where they grew food. So they said, hey, 
like, can I work with Seedleaf to grow food on this land that, you know, a landowner would be okay with, you know, renting out or leasing the Seedleaf? And we said, sure. And from that moment in 2017, we have had by now, let's see, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 15 market gardeners who are people over 18 who have been able to uh, sort of explore this dream. Like, what if I changed my career? What if I became a farmer? Okay, if I'm a farmer, I need to find land and I can't afford it. Can I actually do this? We've been able to take that problem off the table and say, look, if you really want to explore this as an opportunity, come and work with Seedleaf on this land that we have. And you can grow food. All of the proceeds are yours. We provide land and water and resources and training to help you realize this vision that you had for yourself. And in the mix, while they're exploring this ability to be a farmer with the barriers of you know, insufficient funds for land or you know, the other implements that go into farming, their produce is going to local community kitchens like Food Chain. Their produce is going to our local farmer's market. That uh, produce is going to local charitable uh, organizations and being donated. And this is all through the use of local land that we got uh, from a generous landlord who said, yeah, use that land for this purpose. And he has been working with Seedleaf since 2017 to do that. And so if we can think more creatively about land use in the city, right? that a building doesn't necessarily have to be on it that you know just because there's empty space it doesn't mean you know it's not like a nail and you know developers are the hammer we just have to go around developing all the blank spaces but if we can think creatively about that land in ways that help to nourish community and people sort of pursuing these dreams that also feed into goals of the city of building a really great local food economy that you know contributes to the uh, overall like sort of economic well-being of lexington and that also provides a lot of ecological services, right? When we think of what farms do and open green space do for stormwater runoff, for uh, you know, giving habitat to different species of insects and animals, um, then we can see that these spaces do a lot more um, besides just sitting empty waiting for a building to sit on it. So that is an example of what we mean by marrying and I'm blanking on the quote that you mentioned, but generally marrying uh, local food, you know, issues with uh, land access, equitable land access. A lot of our market gardeners, um, they're quite diverse. Many of them are from the communities that Seedleaf is in. Many are just walking distance away. Um, they're diverse, black, white. Uh, we've worked with Congolese refugees in the past. Uh, they represent uh, they lean female, so that's really exciting, but it's a lot of females, uh, adult women who are doing this work or wanting to try their hand at this kind of work, so it's really exciting. Yeah, and you are a wealth of knowledge about this. You just know so much and you're so passionate. It's very evident even through a screen, and that's exactly what the Good Giving Challenge is all about. You know, it's about showcasing nonprofits and these passionate people who are just in the trenches going in and building bridges and filling in the gaps. So why is Seedleaf choosing to participate with the Good Giving Challenge this year? And also in turn, why should our listeners give to you? Yeah, so we've been with the challenge now. This is year 11. So we've been with the challenge since the very beginning. And it is a big uh, event for us. It's where we get, you know, a lot of our fundraising dollars in the year. 
through the Good Giving Challenge. And every year, <laughs> it is, you know, a crazy all-out sprint throughout what was formerly, I believe, a month. Now it's a week, thank goodness. But it is a, a great opportunity, I think, to have an ongoing week-long discussion with our community via social media, right? And throughout the year, we are communicating with folks. But this is the week where we're like sort of hammering home like all that Seedleaf is doing. Uh, we're talking to people about it. We're getting people amped up about it. And because so many eyeballs are glued to social media during this week, it's really just an effective way to say, hey, here we are. Here's what we're doing. Come and support us and work alongside us in this. And so, I mean, that is really essentially the important reason why we do this one obviously for the fundraising dollars because it's so instrumental in helping us to do that work in 2022 and in years beyond that right if we participate every year but it's also just having this huge megaphone throughout the week saying hello everyone in lexington here's who we are <laughs> you know here's what we do here's why we're important and how we're making lexington a really awesome place to live and so, yeah, for this year, if you want to see this work continue, again, these uh, community garden spaces, we have 11 of them. We provide hundreds of hours of programming for uh, children and adults annually. Uh, we still do compost collection uh, at the farmer's market. We, you know, do um, work with children in schools throughout our district to make sure that children have access to outdoor education opportunities via a garden. If any of this sounds worth funding or contributing to, then uh, can, do consider supporting Seedleaf this year uh, so that we can continue to do this work in 2022. I don't really know what else I can say after that. That was a perfect way to end this. So. <laughs> <laughs> I just want you to shout out where people can find you, your website, your social media. I want everybody listening to get involved. You're doing such great stuff. Awesome. So our website is seedleaf.org, www.seedleaf.org. And I almost forgot. Well, let me say, okay, so that's the website, Instagram and Facebook, the, the, the tag or the the way you find us is at seedleaflex. Check out our website to learn more about ways of supporting us. Same. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And Seedleaf is just doing so much for our community. And I know our listeners enjoyed hearing your story. And so everyone go check them out on bggives.org and support them during the Good Giving Challenge. Yay. Awesome. Thank you for having me. The Do Good Radio Hour is super excited to invite Susan Caldwell, Director of Resource Development, to the show today. She is with the Isaiah House Treatment Center, and she's going to tell us more about that. So, hello, Susan, and welcome to the show. Well, hello. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Well, let's go right into the main why behind what you do. Go into the mission of, of the Isaiah House Treatment Center and all, everything that you do. Well, we are a substance use disorder treatment center. Um, we started, actually, in 1999. Um, our founder, Mark LaPalm, um, he started Isaiah House. He, he was a recovering addict, and uh, he decided that he wanted to help people who uh, – it, it started out, actually, as a, a place for uh, men who had just been released from incarceration and were homeless. And he actually took them in his home and, and tried to help them. And over time, it, it really became obvious that – you know, substance abuse was one of the main problems 
uh, it was the thing that was causing the most problems for many of these people. So over the years, um, Isaiah House evolved from that 12 men in a residential treatment center, residential home to today, um, we've got centers in seven counties in Kentucky. We, um, last year, we had um, clients from 105 different Kentucky counties. Um, we serve this year probably over 3,000 people. So our mission is very broad. It is, um, our goal is to provide holistic, comprehensive treatment that helps people achieve sobriety for a lifetime. So we're faith-based. Um, we try to reach and help people in every area of their life that has been impacted by substance abuse and everything from providing basic needs, because a lot of people come to us homeless with the clothes on their back. Um, we, from basic needs to a place to, to stay, to clothing, to, you know, we, we raise money for even dentures and eyeglasses and for, for our clients. We provide job training, employment opportunities, um, you know, counseling, the, all the, the peer support from other people in recovery. Um, it just runs everything that we can possibly do to help someone get clean and stay clean. Is, is what we do. I love that. And obviously, you know, when you know the origin or the history behind the name of something, it kind of helps you latch on to the mission of it and where it's going. So Isaiah House, where did that come from? What's the history behind that name? It is actually comes from um, a part of the Bible, uh, the book of Isaiah. And it talks about um, being able to help people um, bring them into your to your life and into your world and being able to give of yourself to help people. And um, that's where the, the Isaiah came from, is from the book of Isaiah in the Bible. I see where, I guess your tagline, so to speak, is real hope for addiction. And hope is so hard to come by, you know, in this world that we live in. And so what, why do you think that Isaiah House is important for the community and what impact have you seen um, it have on on the people that you serve? And, you know, that's one of the things that you will hear Mark LaPalm anytime he's ever talks about Isaiah House, he talks about hope because people are truly hopeless when they come to us. They've, they have so many people want to get clean and sober. They just can't do it by themselves. And so, you know, one of the things that Isaiah House is known for, and, and probably one of the first, I know the first in Kentucky, probably one of the first in the in the nation, is this emphasis on purpose and giving people a purpose. And, and we do that, one of the ways we do that is through employment and helping people find jobs, helping them get an education. We have a, um, actually have a vocational education center on site. And we have um, an agreement with a college. We're the only treatment center in Kentucky that actually has a satellite, satellite campus of a college on its campus. And we provide GED classes, we provide college classes, we have a certified welding program. Um, so there's opportunities to do those things. And then, the you know, the other thing is just this, if you think about the impact on the community, we are helping people who are, well, people are dying 
from from substance abuse. Um, you know, Kentucky had the highest overdose rate in its history last year, which was it was bad anyway, but with COVID, it got worse. The isolation, the lack of, of you know, being able to access um, help in the community and just the stress of it and, and all those things. So, you know, people are, people are dying. And, and not only that, you know, the people that are still out there, one of the things they'll tell you is they're living a living death because they've lost everything. They, you know, it takes everything from from people. Um, you know, one of the things that we we one of our main things that we always talk about is our goal is to save lives and restore families. So, you know, there is the opportunity to try to heal families to get for people who are unable to be parents. Um, they're unable to be good employees. They're unable to be a good sister, brother, son, daughter, they just can't do it and be in this, the middle of this disease. And so when we impact communities, we're, we're helping people to get their lives back, but we're also impacting the entire community because we're impacting their family members, we're impacting the employers, we're impacting the community at large with providing, you know, helping stabilize families and heal them. Um, we've had graduates that uh, we have graduates out there that are college professors, they're church pastors, uh, they operate their own treatment programs today, they own their own businesses. Um, and so they're out there impacting their communities when we send them home. And that is always our goal to um, send people back to their communities, to be a contributing person in their communities, to have a meaningful, productive life. Right. What you just said is awesome. It sounds like you all do restoration type of work, like re truly restoring people's lives and their purpose and the way that they feel about themselves. And I know if you have experienced that, you obviously have a lot of good stories that come from that. And here at VGCF, we love stories. So if you can, I know this will probably be difficult, but can you just describe to our listeners a story that you have from your time working at Isaiah House and just the impact that it had? Well, um, that's an easy one for me because my son is a graduate of Isaiah House. Um, oh. Yeah, <laughs> he uh, he was um, his name is Jason and uh, he was had the most promising future. He was MVP of his football team. He he was straight A student. He was commander of the JROTC in his school, um, just had this really promising future. And he went to college to play football and got injured and got caught up in the pain pill epidemic. He had pain pills for his injury and somebody showed him how to use it in ways that were not, they were not meant to be used. And it started and it went on for 15, 16 years of, you know, just the havoc that it did on his life and our lives as a family, you know, because you, when you're a parent, you, you you get really angry and disappointed. Don't understand it. And um, Isaiah House, he found Isaiah House himself. He looked up on the internet and he chose Isaiah House because it was Christian based. Wow. And he went there about, oh, I guess first time about 10 years ago. It was different. Isaiah House is different. It is really has that kind of family taking people in 
and embracing them as, as people and, and human beings where they're at. I think he's been, he went in about three times before it finally took. That's one of the great things about Isaiah House is that it never gives up on anybody. And, you know, it never gave up on Jason. I have, you know, I work for them today because I believe so strongly in what they do. And I have a lot of gratitude for that. Uh, Jason today, he's got six years clean and sober. He is actually the associate vice president of Isaiah House. He has a family, four children, a wife. He has a college education, and he's living the life that he was meant to, to live. You know, the last time um, he went to Isaiah House, he was living with me, and it got really bad. He was affecting my mother and my daughter, and um, I finally got the courage to actually put him out. And I told him when he left, I said, you could go live at the homeless shelter. You can go live with your drug dealer or you can go back to Isaiah House. It had become this thing. It wasn't about you can go to treatment. It was you can go to Isaiah House. And of course, that's where he went. He went, he went left with his trash bag of clothes was all he had on over his shoulder. And I called and asked when he got there, just let me know he got there OK. And about six months later, he was back on track. It took it took that long before we were able to heal and get uh, everybody, you know, where family restored. So that's that's my story. Wow, that is a powerful story. And the fact that you came back to work for Isaiah House and your son, it also shows the legitimacy of the work that they do and how and how it really lasts. You know, obviously, the point of this conversation is because the Good Giving Challenge is coming up and you all are a participant. This year, we think last year was our biggest year ever, and we think this year is going to be even bigger. So tell our listeners why they should give to Isaiah House and why it's important for the, for you to receive their funds so you can continue your mission. Well, one of the things, uh, you know, about Isaiah House and about, you know, successful treatment programs is that insurance pays to get it, it can pay to get people clean and sober but it doesn't pay to keep them that way and so there are all these wraparound services that we provide where we you know people stay for for months or uh, transitional living where they go into sober living to try to uh, learn to live again out in the community uh, the job employment the training um, all those things are not paid by insurance and those are the things that help people stay clean and sober, help them maintain their sobriety. And we need the support of the community and the private sector to be able to do that. So, I mean, these people we're helping are, I mean, they're, they're not, they are people that are the best and brightest and they're loved by their parents, their, their children, their friends. And so, Whenever we're able to get the funds to provide those extra services and that extra long-term help, it helps them stay that way, not just get that way. Before we get going here, this is the last question. You've done an amazing job at painting the picture of everything Isaiah House does. I want to make sure that you have the opportunity to say everything you want to say. So the last question here is just for you to, for me to open up the floor to you. Last call to people, last call to our listeners, last, last thing. The most important message is that that we're saving lives and restoring families. I, I mean, right now, today, and probably at this moment, we're picking up some someone who is homeless and desperate, and they're at the end of the line. And, you know, we're picking them up and we're bringing them to Isaiah House. Um, 
maybe a, you know one of their female clients who's been traumatized, victimized, uh, needs help getting past that so that they can raise their children, you know, have a family, um, find a career, and, and impact their community in a positive way. So it's it's every moment of every day. And so when people, you know, make a contribution to Isaiah House, they're, they truly are making, they're changing everything for all of us, really. Yeah, shout out where people can find you, get involved, learn about what you're doing. I want everybody to know because you're doing great work. So your website, <laughs> social media, anything like that. Well, our website is uh, www houseorg and our phone number is 859-375-9200. There you go. Well, Susan, thank you so much for sharing your story. You inspired me and you and your son and your family, it restored your family. And that's just such a powerful testimony. And thank you for sharing that. And we hope our listeners go visit you on bggives.org and give to Isaiah House Treatment Center. Thank you. Thank you. Laura Saldado, the executive director of Bluegrass Parkinson's Alliance, is here, and she's going to take us into the world of this wonderful organization. So, hey, Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for sharing with us today, first of all, and tell us more about your organization, Bluegrass Parkinson's Alliance, and the mission behind it. Sure, sure. Well, our formal mission is to create a community of hope and encouragement by providing resources, education, and support services to those affected by Parkinson's disease. But if you look at what we really do, um, we provide exercise classes to people here in Central Kentucky. So we have every single week uh, yoga, pressing on with Parkinson's yoga. Um, we have an aquatics class, which is kind of like pool aerobics for our people with Parkinson's. We sponsor a rock steady boxing class. And then we also have our Parkinson's exercise program. So our PEP class, which is kind of like HIT um, for people with Parkinson's. Um, we also um, supply music and speech therapy. So one thing that can happen with Parkinson's disease is you lose your voice. So it's really important for people with Parkinson's to be in speech therapy. So we have our loud crowd. Um, and then we do have two music therapy classes, which have been proven to delay the progression of Parkinson's disease. Um, and then we also do sponsor support groups. So we have support groups for both people with Parkinson's, but then also their care partners who often need that support. And we bring in medical speakers and once a month have a medical speaker meeting where people come together. We hear from a doctor or a physical therapist, a neurologist, somebody that has expertise in Parkinson's disease. So we do have a variety of programming and we provide all of this free of charge to our members. This is such a unique organization. And I saw, I was doing some research earlier that it's the oldest of its kind in the Commonwealth. And I found that to be very interesting. So explain how you've seen an organization like this, especially so established in our state, to be of importance to the community. Yes. So yes, we first started over 40 years ago as just a support group, but it has grown and grown and grown. And I think a Parkinson's diagnosis is so much more than just a tremor. So that's what people think of. They think of somebody's hand shaking or their leg shaking, and that's what PD is. But it's not. It's so much more than that. And we really try to stay up to date on research. We work closely with national organizations like the Parkinson's Foundation to try to bring what they're doing back to our local community. So we really try to stay up to date. So for example, I talked about our music therapy classes. We have a class called Drums Alive, and this allows our members to come in. It combines both physical therapy with this music therapy. Um, it activates the left and right side of their brain, which can help delay the progression of the disease. Um, it allows them to sing, which 
again, their vocal cords can be affected by the disease. So we're taking that national, that research-based um, information and then really bringing it back to Lexington, to Central Kentucky, to allow our members to benefit from that. That's great. And, you know, at BGCF, we're all about stories because stories are so powerful and they display tangible examples of the work that you do. So would you mind sharing a story with us from your time at the organization that has been really rewarding for you? Sure, sure, yes. As most people, we had to move a lot of our programming online during the pandemic. Um, and with a support group, that is often hard to do, even getting people where most of our people are 65 plus. So getting them to sign on to Zoom and stuff was sometimes took a lot of encouragement. But I remember one of these support group meetings, um, one of our members, he was talking about the high cost of his prescription drugs. And he was saying, I don't know how I can afford to keep being on these three different Parkinson's drugs. Um, and another member, a lady said, well, actually I had this service that I had found. Here's the website, here's the phone number. Um, you should try giving them a call because they will help, help offset the cost of your drugs. The next month we come back and he was literally moved to tears saying how this organization had helped him cut his prescription drug costs by 50%. He was thankful to the lady that had recommended it. Um, and I just remember thinking like, wow, what an impact. Like, I hate getting on Zoom. I hate, you know, having to be on this forum, but this literally changed this guy's life. Um, and so I'm just so thankful that we're able to create this forum where we can bring these people together who have a pretty similar life's journey at this point um, and let them share advice and exercise together and have therapy together um, and really probably lighten the load of this Parkinson's diagnosis. Yeah, and just sitting here thinking about that particular group of people during this time, you know, they were very affected by what's going on. And so I'm sure providing services to people like that and making sure they still have community and able to relate to people who are going through the same thing was very was very needed for that for that group of people. So it really was. I mean the isolation that we saw of our members and then unfortunately like people decline when they're isolated. Yeah. Um, and so we have really tried to still remain active in the community and as we're sort of coming back and trying um, this summer we were able to do a lot of things back in person um, we just want to remain a constant in their life so they do not feel alone especially with you know their parkinson's the whole point of us talking today is because the good giving challenge is right around the corner and you know what are you expecting to see with the good giving challenge this year i think this is, is this your first year participating it is our first year, so we're actually super excited, you know, to raise funds, but then also just to get our message out and market our organization a little bit more. Um, we know a lot of people have Parkinson's in Kentucky and we're trying to reach them. So if we can just market our name, that's a bonus. Um, as I said, you know, Parkinson's is all encompassing in a lot of ways. And so it oftentimes forces people to have an early retirement or cut back on their hours and have a reduced income. And so we, we provide all of our services free of charge. Um, we don't charge a membership fee. You literally just have to give me your name, email, and phone number so I can communicate with you. So we want to continue to do that, and we really hope that people give to us so we can continue to offer these exercise classes, therapies, support groups, speaker meetings, all of those free of charge so that our members can really delay the progression of the disease, but also, despite their symptoms, still live a full and happy life. Do you all have a lot of volunteers? Um, we do have a lot of volunteers. So I was the first paid employed and I was hired in October of 2019, but we do have a pretty good group of volunteers, um, which 
keep the organization going for sure. Um, of course, we could always use more <laughs> if people, you know, have an interest in that. We would love, you know, your support with the organization, both monetarily, but also time is valuable. So oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> so just to round up the interview here, you've done a great job. Just I love the idea of getting the name of your organization out there. You're the Good Giving Challenge is perfect to do that. But I want to make sure that you say everything that you want to say and have a last word just for you. If something I didn't ask you about something that you want people to know about your organization, just here's your opportunity to say whatever you want to say. Awesome. Well, here in Kentucky, there are over 11,000 people diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And so if you count those people and their care partners and their family and friends, it really does affect a lot of people here in central Kentucky and in, throughout the state. Um, we want to do everything we can to help these people realize they're more than a Parkinson's diagnosis. Um, and we want to provide services that can help them continue to live an active and happy life um, well into the future. So if you will consider donating to the Bluegrass Parkinson's Alliance um, for the Good Giving Challenge, we would greatly appreciate it. It leads me into the next part, which is shout out where people can find you, your website. I don't know if you have social media, anything like that, so people can find you. Get we do have a website. It's bgparkinsons.org, so bluegrassparkinsons.org. Um, and yes, we are on Facebook. It's not as active because we just found that our members don't use it as much, but we will be active during the Good Giving Challenge for sure. So you can find us, the Bluegrass Parkinson's Alliance, on Facebook as well. Well, great. Thank you to you, Laura, and all your volunteers who have rallied behind this mission of such a great organization. And we hope everybody listening goes and checks you out on bggives.org. Awesome. Thank you so much. Radio Eye broadcasts the reading of newspapers, magazines, grocery ads, health information, and more to people who are visually impaired or otherwise print impaired. And Amy Hatter, the executive director, is here to share more about that with us today. So welcome, Amy. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, Kate. Of course. Tell us more about Radio Eye. I'm sure our listeners want to know all about it. Yeah. So like you said, we um, we basically take what's print and we turn it into audio. Um, we read things like the Herald Theater, the New York Times, um, grocery ads from Kroger and Meyer, ads from um, pharmacies, things like that. We do a lot of health programming. We have a couple of shows that are actually exercise shows designed for people who are either visually or physically disabled. Um, pretty much whatever our listeners um, say they want to hear, we, we do our best to get it to them. We broadcast to about 10,000 people across the state. That's an estimate. It, you know, that's, that's the best number we can get from all of our, our ways. There's, cause there's about, I think, 12 or 13 ways to listen to us now. I get a little overwhelmed sometimes with it. So I always have to go to the website and count them and say, this is how many. Um, but you can listen to us on a special radio. Uh, here in Lexington, we partner with WUKY and they give us their sideband um, frequency and we have radios tied to that. So people here in Lexington can listen to that. Um, we're online, we're on Amazon Echoes, we're on telephone, we're on apps. We're, um, again, just about anywhere we can find a place to get a foothold in, that's where we go. And we also have podcasts. What is the history behind this organization? How did it come to be? Because it's such a unique and interesting concept. Yeah. Um, well, our founder, Al Crabb uh, Jr., was in Nashville one day back in 1987, 1988, and he was visiting his father, and his father had this little old-timey looking wooden radio at his bedside and as the owls 
Al uh, Jr. and Sr. were talking, um, Al Jr. Um, was like, what, what is this? You know, I hear talking, but it's not like NPR. It's not music. What, what are you listening to, Dad? And he was listening to Nashville Talking Books, I believe is what they were called at the time, um, which was a reading service that was, you know, doing the exact same thing that we do now. They were reading local news, uh, books, magazines, all that stuff over these special radios. And Al came back to Lexington. He was a professor at UK. Um, and he was like, well, surely there's something in Lexington that does this. I just need to find it. And he looked and he looked and he looked and there wasn't any. And he's like, well, I guess I'm going to have to be the one to do this. Um, he was 70 years old at the time. So very spry, young, started it. Um, we went on the air in November 1990. November this year is our 31st anniversary for going on broadcast. Our first broadcast was, um, it was either November 11th or November 12th, 1990. And it was the reading of the Herald Leader and it went to two people. So from two people reading just the Herald Leader to 10,000 people, we read about 73 different programs um, a week. We broadcast 11,000 11, hours of programming each year to about 10,000 people across the state. So that's, you know, where we come from, where we are. Obviously you have a rich history and just seeing the growth that you've experienced is a demonstration of just the power of what you do and how legitimate it is. So what impact have you seen Radio I have on the community? The biggest one I think is just our listeners know more now. And in addition to that, they feel less isolated. Uh, and I think everyone, Almost everyone now knows after, you know, shutdowns last year and COVID, people now have more empathy and, and know more about what it's like to be isolated. That's what a lot of our listeners' lives are like every day. Um, I was actually talking to um, a listener a month or so ago, and I said, how did COVID affect you? And they said, not much, really, because they were, you know, already in their house all the time. But we, we help with people feeling less isolated. All of our programming is read by people. None of it's like a computer um, voice reading it. So, you know, you're not hearing Siri read you the Herald Leader. Um, Alice is reading it. Bill is reading you the sports. So, you know, it's a human voice. It's a little easier and less monotonous to hear. And it's a little more comforting. Our, our listeners um, start to see our volunteers as their friends. It's like a friend came into their home and is reading them the paper. Um, another impact, of course, on our, our listeners is that they get the entire program read without any editing, and they don't have to wait for someone to, like, come read it to them. Like, um, without us, a lot of people who can't read for themselves, either, you know, because of a visual disability, a physical, learning, anything that makes reading difficult, you know, they might have to wait for, you know, mom or their sister or their friend or, or sibling or something to read it to them. And I've talked to several of our listeners and when they had to do that, you know, mom would be like, mm, he doesn't really need to hear this part. I'm going to skip it. Or I don't think he'd be interested in that. I'm going to skip it. And instead of saying, Hey, I'm going to, you know, do you want to hear this? You know, they, they, they never know that they missed anything. Um, with us, they know they're not missing anything because we take it and we read it exactly as it's written with no interjection of our own opinion. So we're literally just taking the print, making it audio. Yeah. And so 
stories, I love stories. We all love stories. BGCF is all about stories and stories are our human currency, so to speak. You know, the, the way we share and exchange and the power of what has happened to us. So do you have a story from your time at Radio I that has really affected you or that you would like to share? Yes, this was um, a few years ago, maybe seven or eight, so about halfway into my um, term here at Radio I so far, we had a listener call, and she had been a listener since late 1990, early 91, so one of our first listeners, and she called us in tears because she had dropped her radio and it had broken, and she had one of our, our old school SCA radios, and you know she was beside herself because she couldn't hear us, and she wasn't, you know, um, she was like, I broke it. Can I have a new one? She wasn't sure if we would get her a new one. And of course we did. Of course we did. Um, I actually took it out to her, I think, later that day. And she was so happy to have it back. You know, she got to hear the Herald Leader. Um, she got to hear her favorite, you know, books, everything. You know, she got to have her friends back in her life. And I have a, a picture of us with her kind of like holding the new radio um, to her chest because she was just so happy to have it. And you know, that makes me think I'm a, a big reader in my own life. And I only now that I work here, can I imagine what it would be like if suddenly like overnight or even slowly over time, I lost the ability to do that. Um, and, you know, and, and, and that happened to her, you know, she lost the ability to read over time. And, you know, just knowing that there's something like us out there that would help me. And knowing that right now we're helping people like her, her name is Martha, um, like Martha and like my grandfather, who was also a listener for a long time. And just, you know, I get I get to meet our listeners quite a lot. I'm actually going to meet two on Friday because I'm um, fixing their Amazon Echoes um, that need to just be reconnected to their new Wi-Fi. I, you know, I love going to see our listeners and and getting those experiences and just feeling how um, impactful we are to their lives and just, you know, meeting Martha was such, it was heartbreaking when she was sad and then it mended my heart when she was happy and we plugged in the new radio and it worked and uh, the New York Times came on and she was like, ah, oh, I've got it back. And just hearing you say that just makes me realize how much most of us take being able to read or having sight or for granted. And this organization just it gives me such a perspective about how y'all are meeting a need that is a lot of times forgotten you know or overlooked in our in our community so thank you for that and um everyone in the community is getting super excited about the good giving challenge as a participant why should our listeners give to you just um, imagine what it would be like if you lost your ability to read or um if you lost your ability to see or if you you know, had a learning disability and you couldn't just like pick up uh, a newspaper or a book and read it and understand it. Or, or say your mom or your dad got dementia or Alzheimer's. Everyone is temporarily abled. You know, everyone who's not currently disabled is temporarily abled. Um, we're living longer. Um, the majority of us at some point are gonna have some health issue that affects our physical ability or something. You know, giving now helps not just the people who need it now, but will help people in the future. Or if the, you know, potential donors, um, you know, give now, then that means if they need it in the future, we'll still be there. 
before we get going here, if we're rounding the end, thank you so much for sharing. I just want you to shout out where people can find out more about you, your website, your social media. I want people to make sure that they can come to you and find out everything that you're doing, anything upcoming as well. Yes. So our website is radioi.org. That's R-A-D-I-O-E-Y-E.org. Our Instagram is Radio I Lexington. Our Facebook is just Radio I. And then our Twitter is Radio I KY. All right, everyone. That is it. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you were encouraged by the stories of good happening right here in our community. I definitely know that I am. Make sure you tune in next Monday at 2 p.m. for more good stories and the next installment of the Do Good Radio Hour.